Welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. Are you sure? I'm certain. I'm going to need you to produce some form of identification to let me know. Can you give me a few days to get all that together? No. I'm not good at record keeping. No, no, no. Yeah, you're really not. No, I'm not um, detail oriented. This is why we work together well as a team, I think. Yeah. Because that's more of like my strong suit. Yeah. Is being more organized and on top of things and the details and... You're a little bit of a procrastinator. What's my strong suit? Well, you're like a go-getter I'll in do other it. ways. Yeah. Like you're, you're a little worker bee. Okay. I can take so that. So if I sign you tasks, you get them completed, right? But I just can't trust you to like remember to do things. Early on, you made me list of things to do that day, right? Well, I'm kind of a taskmaster. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, you would leave me and be like, you need to, and it was important things at the time, and you need to do this, this, and this you today. You told me before I'm a little bossy. No, but that's okay. That's what I need in my life. You need a leader? I need some direction. So are you saying that I'm like the alpha in this relationship? Maybe in some parts of it. Yeah? Yeah. I'm an alpha in other parts. You like to think you are. Oh. <laughs> it's a mind, a mind fuck. Get out of my brain. I'm sitting here... I often think about when I listen to podcasts, especially like the really like professionally produced right. podcasts, how they're probably sitting in some like awesome studio and this is their job. They're yeah. getting paid to do this. You this know, they is work for not some that company. Right. I mean, I'm like sitting here in like my yoga pants and a sports bra and I'm want to be like, what you staring at my gut for? <laughs> I got this like a roll bulging out. Well, that's the advantage we have. It's pretty seductive, I'm, I'm just going to say. Not being rich and having nice equipment and a studio, because that's stuffy. This is gorilla podcasting, baby. This is like pirate podcasting? Yes. Yar. Like I'm going to wear an eye patch and my pajamas while we talk about cases? That's exactly it. <laughs> well, you have done that before. <laughs> yes, we have. Well, this is a really interesting case, and I've heard of this before. It's fascinated me because... Much like the story of Blair Adams, the details and just the story itself is shrouded in mystery. Yeah, those are good sometimes to dig into one like that. I think so. Yeah. I want to share this with you guys because I do find it so fascinating and it does leave so many questions. I think this will give us a good opportunity to like kind of play detective a little bit. I already have questions. Like, what the hell is this case about? Oh my gosh, let's get started. You want to get started? Yeah, I want to. We're going to take it back to February 3rd, 1972. Okay, that was six years before I crawled out of my mama. Fluff up your sideburns. Okay. Okay. Tie your ascot. And get like a big collar. I've got my bell bottoms on. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready now. Okay. The Durham family lived in Boone, North Carolina for about a year and a half. Bryce Durham was 51 years old. He's the family patriarch, and he came from Wilkes County. That's where he was born and raised. He had moved to Mount Airy to work in the car loan business, eventually moving to Boone to open up his own Buick dealership. Typical all-American success story. He done made it. Yeah. You know, you work hard all your life. You got a goal. Starts out just doing car loans, and the next thing you know... Opens up a big, nice Buick dealership. It's the American dream right there when you could still achieve it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Boone's a nice area. Have you been up to Boone before? Oh, it's beautiful. I love Bo I love it up there. Of course, a lot of people know Boone. Um, it's really known for its skiing. Yep. A lot of skiing up there. And then, of course, Appalachian State University. Yep. Go at 
State. Go Mountaineers. <laughs> I went to Western Carolina University and Western and App are big rivals. Right. They have to be, don't they? And so they every year would have like the fight for the jug, like it's the moonshine jug. Hey, hey. Hey, it's the mountains. And so every year it was like the battle of like who's going to get the jug. One how many walks of shame would happen after the jug bowl? <laughs> A lot. A lot of fun there. They live up in Boone. They've got this car dealership. It's been open for about a year and a half. Things seem to be going well for this family. On this particular February evening, again, it's February 3rd, snow had been pouring down. The Rotary Club had a meeting at Appalachian Ski Mountain in Blowing Rock. There were some Green Berets in town who were doing some training, and they were set to come to the meeting. They were going to do like a bit of a demonstration for the club. We'll kill somebody with their pinky? Maybe. <laughs> Probably just, you know, maybe do some hand-to-hand kind of techniques, you know. So the Rotary Club was excited to have these guests come in, do this demonstration. It was definitely something out of the ordinary. Well, that's back when the Green Berets had like a mystique around them, you know? It was right. like, ooh, it's a Green Beret, you know. Yeah. You didn't hear about all these other, you just heard about Green Berets, really, and maybe an Army Ranger. Very cool, right? Yeah. Well, the weather was so treacherous, and only a few members they say maybe around a dozen showed up for this Rotary meeting. Bryce was described as the kind of person who loathed missing out on special events that were scheduled by his Rotary club. He was a really active part of this club and never wanted to miss a meeting, never wanted to miss any of the events, outings that they had planned. What the hell do Rotary clubs do? I've always wondered that. Is it well, just like a community thing? Yeah, okay. So I'll give you a little background if you don't know what Rotary Club is. The Rotarians are a civic organization. Anyone can join. I think you go like maybe to a meeting. Typically, they like, I think, for you to be invited by a member, but not necessarily. I mean, if you're interested, you can just show up to a meeting. You know, there is kind of a process to like getting into the group. You do pay like a membership fee, but they do a lot of good in the community. Like our local Rotary Club, they raise money, they redo parks. Wow. Like at schools, they redo community parks, they plant community gardens, they do scholarships, they usually have like, uh, you know, a student, a Rotary Student of the Month, you know, these kids are eligible for like a scholarship. I mean, they do a lot of good. And they're also known for like trying to eradicate polio in the world. Oh, well, that's so a, a lot just of the cause. money that they raise has gone overseas to do vaccinations and to research on polio and they raise money for Alzheimer's. So it's just like a community activism group it is, that and it anybody tends to can be join. A lot of uh, like business professional types okay. that are part of it. And it's a social club too. So it's like the Moose Lodge minus the alcohol and old sour ass people. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you now. Bryce really loved being part of the Rotary Club. Okay. Was, so he's all I mean, he's in. He's a business it. owner in town. It's probably a good way for him to network. He loved going to the meetings. He liked socializing. He liked being involved in the community. So Bryce isn't going to miss this damn thing. Hell no. He wanted to go see these Green Berets. And I mean, come on, who wouldn't? It's the 70s. Green Berets are cool. G.I. Joe. Yeah. Yeah awesome dudes, and he wants to go check them out. The demonstration was inevitably cut short because of this impending blizzard. The meeting was let out early. Wah, wah, disappointment. Yeah, well, them guys should not ever worry about weather. They're Green Berets. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I guess they're worried about the, I'm ro- just the Rotarians. <laughs> they're still, yeah. You I, know, I, those Green Berets could probably fashion themselves a snowmobile out of like a spoon and a, a magnet. I mean, so, I don't know. I bet you're right. It was the damn Rotarians that cut it short. 
Yeah. Well, and we're talking about Boone, and I mean, we live here in the mountains too, but Boone is a much higher elevation. It was that northeast of us, right? Yes. Yeah. And they definitely get much more snow than we do. This entire region got a lot more snow back then. Well, yeah, So I bet Dune got huge. But this area yeah. in particular, you know, when they get a snowstorm, it's not like, oh, it's a dusting. No. and it's a, I mean, they get like big snowstorms. That's why skiing is so popular there. Steep mountain roads. Well, that's the other part of it is, yeah. you know, even if it's a blizzard condition, they also have to battle these steep mountain roads, treacherous two-lane wrapping around. See, uh, five thousand foot elevation mountain. I mean, you know, so you got to be careful in this in this kind of weather. You know, you do uh, right quick. You see people from the north or out Midwest where they get these huge snows. Make like, oh, they you only got a little bit of snow, and you know the it's everybody's. But these roads in this area is completely different. Yeah, we can. Then a place that's blocked out and flat, and once you you take any car and get out on a snowy road and flat, but you know, wide open, and have a little easier time than you can on these curvy mountain roads. That are some of them are only six foot wide lanes. Well, right. Outsiders tend to kind of poke fun at us a little bit. Right. They'll cancel school here. Yeah. And there's roads know, get treacherous. Just a dusting of snow, that kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, up in Michigan, we get five feet of snow and it's no big deal. But yeah, people don't understand what driving in the mountains can be like. Yep. All the little windy, curvy, especially once you get off the main roads. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm a pretty confident snow driver for the most part. But you never know. There's the icy patches, and there's a few kind of mountainous areas here oh, yeah. on the highway that... Freeze over instantly. Oh, yeah. Balsam. People don't understand how dangerous, and it looks fine, and you start climbing it, and people are sliding off into ditches. There's yep. accidents. I mean, it's it like a damn free-for-all. take much here for if you don't have a four-wheel drive and know how to drive it, you better not get on the road. You're fucked. Better You're stay f- home. That's right. Stay home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They call off this meeting because this blizzard's coming in, snow's pouring down. It's just, it's getting tricky out there. A fellow Rotarian followed Bryce back to the modern Buick Pontiac dealership, which was on East King Street in Boone. Kind of followed him down there, I guess, just to make sure Bryce made it back okay. And also just kind of sticking together because, hey, the roads are bad. If one of us has an accident, this is pre-cell phone days. Uh, I'll pull you out. I can help you. We'll go get help. That kind of thing. So they, you know, had this plan of like, they'll kind of stick together until they get back into town. When Bryce gets there, his wife, Virginia, she's 44 years old. So she's a good nine years or so younger than Bryce. She's still working at the dealership. This was around 8.30 p.m. Their son, 19-year-old Bobby Joe, was a student at Appalachian State University And he was meeting them at the dealership as well. He had planned to ride home with them because of the weather. And from what I understand, he was actually going to go meet a friend. And they were going to go to like a basketball game on campus. But his parents, you know, swayed him from doing that. They were like, we don't want you to go. The roads are going to be bad. We don't want you out driving around. We want to all get home safely. Cancel with your friend. Come meet us we'll all ride together. Part of that was because Bryce had an employee gas up a GMC Jimmy, which apparently had just arrived to the lot. It was like the brand new vehicle. Oh my God, I want that. I want it now. And it's like the brand new four-wheel drive, kind of flashy He probably wanted to try it out in the snow, you know? Probably. So he had one of his employees gas that up. He planned to drive his family home in the snowstorm in this SUV. 
essentially. The Durham family lived up a really steep but short road and it was a dead end. It was right off of North Carolina Highway 105. Not a very long driveway or drive up to the house, but it was just such a steep drive to get up there. Neighbors actually heard the vehicle go up the hill around 9 p.m. because it was so steep. The neighbors were like, yeah, we could hear it outside because, of course, it's spinning and right. making a lot of noise. They're kind of sliding and struggling to get up this hill. And Bryce was not going to let this vehicle in the snow well, like defeat him. He's in a br his brand new four-wheel yeah, drive like, that he's selling. We're getting up this hill, right? Yeah. So he's like, you know, probably giving it a couple of tries, trying to get up this. So the neighbors hear this. They note the time because the nine o'clock movie was coming on television. That's how it used to work. Yeah. You had to wait. Before we had all those streaming channels and stuff, you had to wait for the nine o'clock movie. And you'd be happy as hell if it was something you wanted to watch too. Right. Like I remember on Sunday evenings um, when I was a kid, and of course this was like in the 80s and early 90s, the Disney movie on Sunday. Oh, It was like dude. seven o'clock on Sunday night. They would show a Disney movie. Where it'd do like the classic castle yeah. thing. Oh yeah. You you know when that music played? Yeah. Oh, you was about to be happy. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And you were really lucky if it was like one of the classic cartoons. Oh, yeah, but sometimes it'd be that weird. Like, they did a lot of stuff with the animals, you know, like, like, yeah, I weird was say, I remember this one that I never liked, but I had friends who thought it was a great film, and I can't remember the exact title of it. The girl's name was like Natty something, and yeah. she had a dog that was like a wolf dog, and she's like on a train, like boxcar hoboing with this wolf dog or something. Isn't that like know. a. I just remember that was one that they played quite a bit. Yeah. And I'd always be like, oh, like uh, disappointed when it was that movie. Yeah. Because I was like, no, where's, I want Cinderella. I yeah. Want Snow White. You never knew, but when it was something awesome, you were very happy. Exactly. So nine o'clock movie coming on television. The neighbors can hear this struggle of this vehicle trying to get up the driveway. They're getting ready to watch the movie. So they're like, okay, it's nine o'clock. The Durham family must have made it home safely because the living room showed that they were likely sitting around, maybe eating a snack together, TV on, there's food kind of out. From what I read, there was like a half roasted chicken like out on the counter. They've got cups and drinks, snacks. So yeah, they got yeah. home a little late. It's snowy. It's cold out. Yeah, I could, uh, that's what I would do. Have some nice food and just chill, just chill, hang out, Ride some out chill time. Hope that the um, weather doesn't cause a power outage. And then me telling everybody who came and looked at the Jimmy at the dealership of how I got up my steep drive. Exactly. Right. And I'm thinking like mom probably, Virginia probably went in the house, immediately starts like gathering candles and things. That's what I do when it starts to snow. It's a big, like a bad storm is that I sort of go collect all the candles and flashlights and kind of keep them all in one place in case you do get a power outage. Oh, yeah. I start, like, collecting all the blankets and, like, sweatshirts because I'm like, oh, we may have to layer up, <laughs> you know? You're just hoping something happens so you can use all your gear you got prepped. All right. So I'm just thinking, okay, that's probably the scene that's unfolded is maybe they've gathered up some things. They're eating a snack. They're just kind of riding out the storm to see what happens. Around 1020, maybe 1030, the Durham son-in-law, a guy named Troy Hall, gets a phone call. It was Virginia Durham. She said there were three black men beating up Bryce and Bobby Joe. Okay. The call was then like abruptly cut off. At the time, Troy Hall said he thought that she was joking. Told his wife, Jenny, 
who happens to be the Durham's daughter, what had happened. And I'm like, so is that some sort of knee slapper? Like, help, we're being attacked by three men of color. And then Get I hang it. up the phone. Is that like, he thinks it's a joke? I don't understand Yeah. what humor is in that. Maybe the week before. And that's a really weird prank. Like, if it was a prank, I don't see how that would be funny. Well, maybe that's the inside joke. And the week before, she was like, called and was like, help, there's five Oriental guys stabbing my mom in the neck. <laughs> I'll call you next <laughs> Well, she would back then. Yeah, right, back I know then. what you're saying. I wouldn't. But yeah, or, maybe... Or that, maybe like the week before she called him and like, oh no, get over here. Bobby Joe's being anally probed by some aliens. Maybe Yeah, maybe that's just their type of humor. Yeah, I don't know. Troy Hall and the Durham's daughter, Jenny, they were newlyweds and they rented a trailer about four miles away from the Durham home. The couple was both enrolled at Appalachian State University, so they were both students. Now, earlier in the evening, Troy had been at the Appalachian State University Library studying and catching up on some homework. He had arrived home around 10 p.m. He said the Olympics were on television. He and Jenny watched maybe 10 minutes or so of the games on TV. Because, you know, back then, I mean, now people still watch the Olympics. But during this time, this is when, like everybody's glued to their television oh, set yeah, watching was, the Olympic Games. Well, there's limited entertainment, like you pointed out. It was a big deal, form, right? Yeah, huge So deal. they're watching the game, and then the cable went out. Because you got to remember, it's a big storm. Cable goes out. They put on a record, and they're listening to some music, and then that's when the phone call comes in, and Troy answers the phone. He tried to call back to the house, but the line was busy. Freaked out. The couple decides to get in their vehicle to drive over to the Durham house to see what's going on. In the storm. To check on everybody. Yeah. Okay. Well, their car wouldn't start. They ask a neighbor named Cecil Small to drive them over to the parents' house. It took them about 20 minutes to get there. Again, it's only about four miles away, but it's a bad storm. It took them, you know, about 20, 25 minutes to get over there. So a little slower than usual, which we'll get to this. But this is all just kind of strange to me. Well, Jenny waited in the car while her husband and Cecil Small, who, by the way, had worked as a private investigator. How did I know with a name like that? <laughs> they And I guess he was like the manager of the trailer park where they lived. Okay. And it was kind of, you know, friends with them or whatever, a little bit older than they were. They walked up the hill to the house. Because apparently they couldn't get Cecil's car up that steep drive. So they kind of parked at the bottom walk up to the house, and the home was a split level. The men approach the house to find all the lights on inside. The doors are locked, can't get in, but they were able to gain entry into the home by sliding under a malfunctioning garage door. Okay, so like it didn't go all the way down. Open. So one of them kind of slid under there. They get in the house. Now, when they walk in the home, they see it's been ransacked. So it's just a, a mess. Described as usually tidy and just completely immaculate. Like apparently Virginia was quite the housekeeper and this house was like everything is in its place. Super clean, tidy home. And the place was just a mess. The phone was ripped out of the wall. Pictures were torn down off the walls. Uh, sheets were ripped up from the beds. Drawers ripped out of dressers and chests and bureaus. Just shit everywhere. Well, yeah, that's that in itself is disturbing when you come into some places typically, or just e- even if a place is cluttered, but you come in well, and you it's can destroyed. Well, you can tell there's been like a struggle like of some kind. Yeah, and that's that's really scary. That would disturb me. While they're 
kind of investigating the scene of like, holy shit, what's happened here? It's like a tornado came through and just ripped up this house. They could hear the sound of water running. When the two men went to find out like where the water was coming from, they stumbled upon an even worse horrific scene in the downstairs bedroom or bathroom. I love the look on your face. Well, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I feel like we need to cue the dun 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 dun. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. I was, I'm, I'm ready for sound effects, Dylan. Virginia Durham died of strangulation. Her husband and son had been strangled and drowned. A cord was tied loosely around Bryce's neck. And this is the thing. The bodies were all across the lip of the bathtub. What the like hell? One, you know, one, two, three, over the lip of the tub. The water was starting to overflow and there was some kind of overflow drain. Yeah. So the water wasn't actually like splashing, you know, out or anything onto the floor. The floor is completely dry, but that water's, you know, doing so, its thing. Yeah. And these three bodies, their heads are all three in the bathtub. Yeah, I can picture what type of bathtub that is. The two men ran out of the house, went to a neighbor's to call police. Now, when the police arrive, they, you know, basically find the same scene in the house. So they're all perched up on this tub. It's full of water, but not coming all the way out. And it's four, it's four people? Three people. Three people? Virginia, Bryce, the husband, the patriarch, and then their son, Bobby Joe. My God, could you imagine finding that scene? The four-wheel drive Jimmy, that they had borrowed from the dealership, was found abandoned about a mile away on Poplar Grove Road with the lights on. The windshield wipers were running, the doors were closed, and the motor was still running. Now, inside the vehicle, police find a pillowcase with silverware inside. Okay. But that's all they find. The vehicle was parked as if it was meant to be discovered. Investigators noted there were no skid marks or signs that the truck had been sliding, like, on this road. Right. It was as if someone had just decided to stop, kind of pull over a little bit, leave it where it was. But leave it running. Well, yeah, they weren't trying to hide that at all. The Durhams had taken home a bank deposit bag from the dealership. The money bag, along with other valuables, were still inside the home. So the house had been totally ransacked, but there was nothing taken, which immediately led investigators to believe that this was like a staged robbery. Okay. And not the real motive behind the killings. I mean, the bank bag full of cash was hanging on the back of a chair and pretty visible to anyone who came in the house. Right. Like, it's hanging right there. I guess it's got the bank printed on it. It's pretty obvious it's a bank bag, and it's stuffed full. Probably thousands of dollars in cash. If you ransack this house, you're probably going to notice the bank bag hanging on the back of a chair. Well, and if you're going to steal something, you'd probably get that and not, like, silverware. I mean, even if it was silver, like, real silver, it's kind of an odd thing to steal. Yeah, even if you got the silverware, too, or were taking everything you could find, but just that... And leaving bags of cash behind, that doesn't sound... It doesn't really make sense. No. The investigators knew that more than one person had to commit this murder. The son, Bobby Joe, was young. He was strong, athletic. He had been an Eagle Scout. Pretty solid guy. Bryce and Bobby Joe were held underwater and drowned while still alive, the medical examiner would later say. A strange and puzzling detail is that there was no water on the floor, as I mentioned before. Even after these two men were drowned, they were held underwater, drowned, no water was on the floor of the bathroom. Just pause for a moment and consider how weird that is. You got three people 
in this bathtub, there's no real signs of a struggle. I mean, I'm just imagining if somebody was grabbing me, putting my head underwater, I, you know, I'm going to be flailing around. Oh, yeah. With my hand. I mean, there's probably going to be water everywhere. Adrenaline, everything pumping. Yeah, it's going to be, you think they could clean it up? I mean, maybe, but there was no signs of like any kind of. Why would you take time to clean mops. it up anyway? Right. Some splotches of blood were found on the shag carpet. I love that it was shag carpet, by the way. Makes me sneeze thinking about it. Not very big spots of blood either. Some Just little like spots. a little splatter. And it was believed that maybe Virginia was hit in the face because her nose was bloody. One of the assailants had probably punched her, maybe trying to knock her out or knock her down, you know? And so that blood, they figured out, was probably likely from her bloody nose. Now, an autopsy would show some signs of blunt force trauma to Bryce's head. I guess he had a skull fracture, and then she had signs of a head injury as well. But there were no signs of defense wounds. And you also have to remember, Bryce probably hit in the head. He had the cord around his neck. She died from strangulation as well. So I'm thinking, okay, well, they probably strangled her, hit her in the head, strangled her, she died. They hit him in the head. They are strangling him. And he could have been alive, but maybe that kind of, he was knocked out. Maybe that's why there was no Yeah, well, I mean, that splash. makes sense. But again, no sign of defense wounds. And you just think these people would be fighting back. If strange attackers, unknown persons broke in your house, essentially a home invasion, you'd probably start fighting back. Yeah, you never know. They could have used... um I mean, unless they're, they had it done. I mean, who knows? They could have used their child to make them do things. You know what I mean? Submit right. I mean, we ways. don't know all of that, but just sort of speculating. It's But it does seem that. It's just, I think it's unusual. And there were no signs of forced entry to the home either. I mean, the television was on. Food was still on the table, which led investigators to believe that the family was surprised by these attackers. There were no tracks outside the home. And the carpets were not wet from shoes tracking in snow. And they believed, and just gauging from the time frame of what time these people got home, when the phone call happened, I mean, this isn't a short period of time. Yeah, that it is. There would still be, you know, I guess tread marks, track marks, whatever, in the carpet, wet feet, that that stuff probably would still be in the house. Well, you figure three, three grown men, you know, and who knows if they tromp in and out more than once. So, yeah, you could expect there's some sign of someone having been in and out. And that's not even enough time hardly for the snow to cover up tracks. The harsh winds and such could explain maybe the lack of footprints outside the house. Because, you know, it was storming pretty severely. I mean, they're describing it as like a blizzard. like just. Yeah, I guess in 30 minutes it could change. Yeah. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, well, if it's just a fucking downpour or just a downpour of snow, Tracks then aren't gonna last. they could get filled up. And if the wind's blowing, like just crazy, crazy. And it sounds like it's up on a bald. Right. Like, a you know, the house is kind of up on the hill. So, yeah, it probably gets some hell of wind through there. But the fact that carpet showed no signs of dirty shoes from the outside is pretty odd. Because in the snow, you'd have wet shoes, and you might even have a little bit of, like, mud, you know. Right. Or dirt from that. Four men were arrested. They were Caucasians from Asheville, roughly two hours away from Boone. So Asheville's about a good two-hour drive. And these guys were from Asheville. Now, during a burglary investigation, I guess there was some kind of burglary ring, a lot of homes being broken into, one of the men who had been arrested 
confessed, and they think probably hoping to make some kind of plea deal. He says that he had been present when his friend shot this family in a burglary gone wrong. But later it was revealed that the confessor had actually been in jail the night of the murders. Okay. And then, of course, the fact that this family wasn't shot, and none of the details of the story he told matched up to the actual crime scene. I guess there were some things that they didn't quite release to the public that a killer would have known, and he just totally was like, you could tell, was fabricating a story, like, just to try to get his charges dropped. Yeah, some of the reasons that people falsely confess to things are are very interesting. We'll talk about that one day. These charges for murder were dropped. Troy and Jenny ended up moving out of town and divorced seemingly like just a few years after this event, this incident. A $40,000 reward is even currently being offered on any information leading to an arrest in this case. The murders remain a cold case, and although some evidence has been lost over the years, the police apparently still have that cotton rope, the cord that was found around Bryce's neck, and it just seems to me that maybe modern DNA testing might yield some results or help solve this case. Maybe. Um, I know that the police have come out and said they periodically run fingerprints to see if they can match any that were found on the scene, that even though it's a cold case, they are still trying to actively investigate this case. Yeah, once um, they work, you know, once they work on it, when they first get the case and, uh, you know, track down all the leads and go through all the steps, investigative steps they know, you know, sometimes there's just, it just doesn't go anywhere. The case probably suffered because it was a small town. The department likely understaffed and under-resourced at the time. And because this was a pretty big murder case, right? triple homicide, it was likely they had probably never experienced working a case like this. Which means the investigators are not seasoned, grizzled. Right. It's kind of like... Badass homicide detectives. It's like a shot in the dark. Like, hey, right. we're going to try to figure this out, but we really don't. They probably have a little maybe domestic we're doing murders kind of or, you know, I'm sure some murders, but, you know, that that's a whole different ballgame. Several theories have surfaced over the years in this case. So let's talk a little bit about this. One of the theories is that it was a hired hit. Well, there's some of the things you've said made me think that. The state, you know, staging the robbery. You, you only do that. If you're trying to make it look like a robbery, but it's really something else. Well, and again, these are theories. They're all based on rumors and speculation. No forced entry means you could have possibly known. Some people have said they think Bryce was involved in some shady business dealings, possibly through the car dealership. Like, rumors have circulated that it could have been some sort of, like, mafia or organized crime Maybe crime type of hit. Laundering money. He, yep, may have been laundering money. He may have owed money. To someone. Could have maybe, been a big gambler. Maybe borrowed money to open this dealership. Maybe he wasn't selling what he thought he was going to. I mean, so there's that thought. Or even that when he was living in Mount Airy, people said he had some questionable farm dealings. Okay. Um, and that he may have, like, screwed some farmers out of money, some livestock sales, and that people were pissed off and that this was like a, you know... A revenge killing. Like, yeah, it sounds like that might have involved a significant amount of money. And, of course, police kind of followed up on those leads, but really didn't find anything substantial to back that up, other than just, you know, small-town gossip Speculation, and chat. Really. The second theory 
is that it was someone who was familiar with the family. One investigator would come out a couple of years later and say that he did not believe that Troy Hall, the son-in-law, had received a phone call from Virginia at all that night. Can't they check that? Back I don't know then, about could they? I don't know about phone records. Maybe back not then. because there's still party lines and things like that, huh? Right. Where you just pick up the phone and wait for other people to hang up, or yeah, right. And that may have been the case in uh, maybe this they area in track the 70s. It, yeah. I'm not sure. But according to Troy's timeline, he says he didn't get home until 10, which could have given him time to be involved along with his wife. Okay. Because he, you know, had gone to the library. He says I got home at 10. Uh, the fact that there were no footprints inside the home shows that maybe it was someone the family knew and that they had taken their shoes off when they came into the house. Like, oh, right. come on in, take your shoes off. Because the house this. is kept immaculate and they probably didn't let people walk around wet snowshoes. Again, also the fact that there was no struggle, it's as if someone knew the family because if strangers just burst through the doors on this unsuspecting family, you're going to be f- you fight mode instantly. Expect some kind of fight mode. Those defense marks, defense wounds that we talked about. Third theory. It is strange, if you think about it, that the young couple didn't first call police. This kind of goes along with the theory that maybe they're involved. They didn't call the police. And instead of braving going over to the house in the bad weather to see what was going on, they could have easily picked up the phone, called the police. Hey, we got this strange phone call. The cops probably would have been there quicker. Probably. Because remember, they... Their car wouldn't start. And then they had to ask they the neighbor. They had to borrow the neighbor to, you know, hey, will you take us and give us a ride? Or they could have called the cops and then headed over that way. Or that they go over there and they, you know, they see this scene before they even found bodies. And it took all of that before they called police. I also think it's strange if you do get a phone call from your mother-in-law. Like, I'm just imagining my mom calling you. Hey, someone's breaking in the house. They're trying to kill me. That... We would go over there and that you would leave me sitting in a car outside when these alleged attackers could just be out and about? No, that's kind of stupid. The whole story is really goofy if you think about it. It is. If your mom or somebody called me and was like, oh, so-and-so's being attacked, ah, and it's abruptly cut off and I can't get you back, brushing that off as uh, thinking joke? that someone's joking is very strange. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't add up necessarily. And then they, yeah. The killers... Maybe you were already inside the home waiting for the Durhams to get there, which could explain the element of surprise. Maybe the track marks on the carpet. Right. I mean, maybe the family settled in, hung out a few minutes before the attackers were like, hey, okay, it's time. Right. I gave you the signal. I don't know. Now, could that be spoiling or walking in on a robbery? Or do you still think? I well, mean, no, because there was like a half-eaten chicken, and yeah. they had snacks and drinks. It's like oh, they came well, okay, home so they'd so been I'm thinking, there. Okay, well, maybe if these attackers were like hiding upstairs or in the garage or wherever, they gave the family some time to settle in before they were like, you know, hey, here's the hand signal. Well, if that malfunctioning garage door was real, would be a way someone could gain entry into the home, right? Right. Some robber So that's types. interesting. The crime scene obviously was staged. And the whole bathtub thing just seems kind of weird to me. Like, it just seems personal. Like, for example, it wasn't just a random killing. And this is just me thinking on this. Um, if you were going to rob people, you'd likely take a gun. Yeah, in or, case you need it. Or you just strangle all of them. 
But the drowning in the tub, and this is just my interest in true crime, and I'm no detective or criminologist, but this is just me and my crazy brain, is thinking the drowning in the tub is almost like a personal crime, or it's like sending a message. Yeah. And, it's and, just so unusual. It's not, it just doesn't seem random to me. No. And if, um, and it just makes me think of if it was like some sort of contract killing, the message like, you know, sleeping with the fishes. Yeah. That the, right. That like the drowning, it just seems really personal. It's very hands on. Somebody back in the big city or wherever, you know, whoever he offended or wronged could have been like, introduce him to the rubber ducky. Yeah, that could be his catchphrase. He could be the, known as the bathtub killer. There could have been like the ivory soap killer. We didn't even know. That, yeah, exactly. And uh, you'll never find him because it rinses so The free. Irish spring just yeah. yeah down the drain. No, but it also could be, I was thinking about going along with staging the scene and doing like this kind of over-the-top scene here with these bodies. Instead, like I'll say, if it's robbers and you surprise them, even if they are already there and they come out, they're going to they're going to be thinking about getting the hell out of there, right? They're going to be thinking about whatever, I, even if they kill people, it's going to happen fast, it's going to be chaotic, and they're going to get the hell out of there. They're not going to take this time to, you know, drag the bodies or, or you know, kill, you know, it just seems like someone doing something to make it, like, like seem like something it isn't. Or with purpose. Yeah, or, like, make it so over the top that, that people are talking more about what they saw and stuff and, you know. I don't know. It just seems weird. Well, and back in the 70s, I mean, today you might think, okay, somebody did that because maybe it washes away evidence, DNA yeah. and stuff. But back in the 70s, I mean, they didn't really have the um, pristine, the, you know, most skills the, right. to like, I don't they know had, if that's the right word, but. They had basic, what, fingerprints? Yeah, And much. maybe a couple other. Plus. They could do like fiber or hair testing, but it was just really almost like junk science at that point. Right. That's where you, you have more of having a talented investigator on your team who, you know, find, you know, finds these clues and things or makes it, leads him in a direction by what he sees. Not so many of the forensic sciences. Now, here's an odd connection that I just had to bring up because it's so just bizarre is Cecil Small, the neighbor. He is the one that had given Troy and Jenny a ride over to the Durham's house. Small happened to be passing through Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, and caught the tail end of the president's motorcade. Really? Now, he claims he spied a Hispanic man in the crowd with a poorly concealed rifle. Small, being, you know, unfamiliar with the Dallas area and this parade happening, I guess there was confusion and he didn't really know, like, where he was going exactly. He pulled over at the now-famous book depository to ask for directions. What the hell? Now, Cecil says a man asked for a ride, and this man he would later discover was Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, if this is true, then Oswald was not the shooter. Right, because he caught the tail end of the motorcade, so it hadn't happened yet. Right. Correct? And he's claiming he saw this Hispanic man with a shotgun or a rifle. Now, Cecil stood by this account until his dying day. Okay. Like, he told, you know, I guess he went forward to law enforcement. I mean, he's for years and years and years told this story. Who knows if he was full of shit or if that's something he really saw. But I just thought that was a really interesting detail. Well, that is. That this happened and then he's the guy. And he was also a private investigator. Another rumor swirled that the Green Berets had chosen the Durhams as targets to carry out some sort of training. 
like a blitz attack of sorts. Yeah. On this family, murder them. So it's like a diehard two snowmobiles, white suits, machine guns, attack this fixed position and take yeah, I think that's probably the um least likely of these crazy scenarios. Again, rumor. Yeah. A sweep of the crime scene did not find any hair evidence. And this is what I thought was interesting is that the son in law Troy Hall said on the phone that Virginia Durham claimed they were being attacked by three black men. Okay. Well, I mean, unless they were wearing, like, hazmat suits, right. you would think that they would find some hair evidence Well, you're, in the house. There's got to be some kind of a struggle. Even if you get the jump on someone, you're strangling them. I mean, you're that's not easy. Right. Well, there were no hair fibers anywhere. I guess they have some sort of vacuum okay. where they swept, like, from what I read... They swept the ceiling, carpets, sheets. I mean, just everything in this house. Okay, so they and did. And none of the hair evidence belonged to a black person. Right. So, yeah. The, so, they had a fiber analysis going on, huh? Sounds like they were into it. Maybe it was the hot new thing back then. Right. And so, I just thought that was interesting considering Troy Hall's account that he had received this phone call and that she said it was like three black attackers. Yeah, and also that, so he gets this phone call. We're being attacked. She's screaming at him or whatever. So that's not, that kind of goes against the, got the total surprise and jump and control of everyone in the instant, right? That kind of goes against that because she's been able to get, you know, to the phone and make a phone call. And the phone and was so ripped out of the wall. Troy. Why don't you call the damn police? Right. And the phone call or the phone was ripped out of the wall when they got there. Right. So, I mean, it could have been possible that she called, they ripped the phone out. Right. But if the phone was ripped out of the wall, that almost seems like the first thing. If you've got multiple people invading a home and you're trying to get control of your hostages or your victims, one of the first things you do would be rip out the phone. Or disable the phone somehow because back then you take the phone out of the equation You've taken all forms or chances of communicating with someone else out of the equation. Just get the phone. That was it. The only option. Investigators also thought the idea of like homicidal maniacs just lurking in the midst, waiting to find this family during one of the worst storms of the year just made no sense at all. Nope. Not to mention how the house was located on top of a hill on a dead-end road and was not easily accessible. The idea that this was just some random killing, like someone's just driving down the highway, hey, let's go rob somebody. This is really not like the first choice, the easiest choice for a house to rob. Right. To bust in on. The other guy would be like, let's go find some obscure location that's hard to access that we have no idea where it's at because we never even noticed it before. Right. And there yeah. was like no tire marks, like someone had been up the road to get to this house. I mean, yeah, I it's mean, like someone would really have to walk up this really steep incline, passing other homes, other neighbors. Right. To it's get not up there. right off the road or right next to the road or a busy part of town, you know, busy interstate or anything like that. Jenny was the sole heir. She inherited about $250,000 which is still a large amount of money, but in the 70s, definitely a big chunk of change. Yeah, which I'm sure she could care less about if she had her entire family back. Other people said it was no secret that her parents didn't like her husband, that the Durhams had been pressuring their daughter to leave Troy Hall. And they were still newlyweds, but I guess there had been some trouble in the marriage. Her parents didn't like him. They didn't think, you know, he's not good enough for their kid, whatever. Now, cops would come out later over the years and say they really didn't think Jenny... Hall had any knowledge of this 
or had anything to do with it just oh, based on their interviews. And, you know, they just didn't think she was involved. So possibly Troy got someone to do, arrange this? Or that he was part of it, maybe? Yeah. I mean, there's speculation. Now, he went on to be an attorney and I guess a const- he like owns a construction business. And from what I understand, you know, recent reports like in the last few years or something is that he like lives in Georgia. And I think that Jenny is now remarried. She lives in like Washington State, but still has a summer home like somewhere here in that region of like Boone, Elkin. So he could have paid for his lawyer schooling and stuff with that fucking money. Well, I don't know. She and Troy divorced a few years after this happened. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if he got any of the divorce, you know, any of the money in the divorce. But, you know, there are just a lot of people out there who think he could have potentially been involved. A lot of people think that she was involved because she was set to inherit a lot of money as the sole survivor. Again, all rumor and speculation. We don't know. I'm just sort of presenting all the theories, all the facts as I have them, because it's such an unusual case. Well, yeah, there's going to be theories because that just doesn't seem, that's not straightforward in the least bit. Right. And so many things about the murders are just so off. It doesn't make sense. robbery. I'm surprised. The drowning. I mean, there's just, I don't know. It's just a really weird case. And I'm sure the cops thought the same thing. Leaves a lot of questions. And they probably tried and thought about it, but there was just no, you know, no evidence to, you know, steer them down the path. They they may have, who knows, some of them may have thought 100% that, you know, that guy did it or had someone, you know, involved in some way. Well, and some people speculated, the, the folks that believed that maybe the son-in-law was involved also speculated that perhaps the car not starting had been intentional so that right. they would go get this neighbor who had a private investigator background. Another witness. Because he was a good witness. Yep. To go over there with them. And that that's why, like, they took so long to contact law enforcement. Right. That's crazy. Well, it is all very crazy. And, I mean, who knows if this case will ever be solved? It's over 40 years old. I wish I'd find out who damn did it. <laughs> well, I got money, huh? Well, I could use that. 40000 <laughs> And plus, well, actually, I would just want to bring someone, the killer, to justice. Well, that, and I mean... And if I got $40,000 for doing that, so be it. There needs to be some closure to this case. I mean, it's really hard for families to go all those years and never really know what happened. Yeah, because... Why? I mean, I'm a why person. I want to know if someone's explaining to me, this is how you do this. This is why this happens. I'm like, why? I need to know the why. Like, my brain just wants to know. I need a reason. I need to know why. And so I would just be like, I want to know why this happened. Did yeah. my dad owe money? Was it random? I mean, I'll, that would be the important part for me, would just to know, well, like, why? Why this happened? Well, I think and that's the saddest thing and when something horrible like that happens to a family because they all had mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, a family. Who knows how big fam- big their families were. But it left all these people, like you said, wondering why. And and you need that why enclosure, I think, so you can have a starting point. It's never going to be good or the same. It's always going to be horrible. I can only imagine losing loved ones like that. Well, and over the years, this but, cold case has haunted this community. Yeah. I mean, residents locking their doors, looking over their shoulder. Do we have a madman? Do we have killers lurking in our backyard? And the fact that it's unsolved also just, it leaves like a little bit of that eerie, like, ooh. I mean, yeah. even all this time later, because it's like, how could this happen? And this could still happen to us today. Even the, yeah, the community even needs closure. Yeah, you're right. Especially in smaller 
smaller communities where people tend to know of each other at least more, you know, instead of a big city. But yeah, so I guess we may likely will never know why. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, with the advancement of DNA and, and different technology, there might be a time when they are able to solve this case. But, you know, every week, month, year that passes, decade that passes, I mean, it, it just becomes harder and harder to solve this case because suspects, people who may have been involved, they may have passed away by now. They died. Because Bryce Durham was 51 when this happened, and this was 47, 48, I mean, I can't do math, but so many years ago. This was a lot of years ago. Yeah, I mean, he would have been like, I mean, he would be in his 90s Right, he'd be like old as Moses. So if he had attackers who were in their 30s or 40s, they're going to be elderly. Oh, yeah. you hear? I hear this all the time. I'm going to listen to podcasts, especially the ones that are like, we're going to figure out what happened in this, or we're going to get the case where, you know, the ones that really dig in, like that cool one you pointed out to me, uh, or someone on our Facebook actually mentioned Helen Gone. Oh, right. That's a good and one. You li- yeah, and I was listening to the first season of that, and it's just like they're, they're intent on uncovering new evidence. It's been the case of the Durham family. Again, cold case, unsolved, and you're listening to Mountain Murders. If you want to support our podcast, you can find us on Patreon, Mountain Murders Podcast. For just a couple of bucks a month, you can sign up, be a patron, and get exclusive content delivered uh, just for you. We also have our Facebook page, Mountain Murders. We have Twitter. You can find us there under Mountain Murders. And then, of course, if you look for Mountain Murders Podcast on Instagram, you can follow us there. And always hit subscribe. Give us five-star reviews. We like that.